to 34. If you would have that open for me as we read it. And I didn't destroy your microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Reading the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself." Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. And I'll now ask Clint to come forward. Good morning, everyone. Just so you're aware, I think one of our congregation members has taken ill towards the back there. Um, We, I understand, are calling an ambulance and we have... We've thankfully got a number of medical professionals in the congregation, so we're looking after the situation. It's probably appropriate that we pray for Joe um, right now, so let's do that before we continue. Our God and Father, we know that our days are in your hands, and so, Father, we pray now that you would indeed uh, have Joe in your hand. Lord, we pray for her peace and her 
recovering. And we pray, Lord, for those caring for her, that you would give him uh, grace and wisdom to look after her in the best way. And Father, we pray now that we'd be able to uh, stop and focus on your word and to hear what you will say to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do have a Bible open at Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at that passage that was read for us a short while ago. Let me ask you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Ever remember being asked that question or perhaps uh, asking yourself that question of what you would like to be when you grew up? Maybe you wanted to be something heroic like a firefighter or maybe something, someone famous like a rock star or maybe someone helpful like a doctor or a nurse or a vet or perhaps someone influential like a teacher or maybe even a leader in society. Or just something spectacular, like an astronaut or an explorer. Or maybe you're still trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. I think it's fair to say, though, that these aspirations do seem to fade as we get older. Because of circumstances and opportunities and abilities, our dreams often end up being out of reach. And they're replaced often by a simple dream to have money and wealth. As we've grown up, we've seen what money can buy. We've seen what money can achieve. We want a piece of that pie as well to have the freedom to do what we want and when we want it. A recent study surveying the aspirations of Gen Zers, that's people who were born roughly between 1995 and 2010, they found that for Gen Zers, making money and having, having a successful career far outweighed other goals like having close friends, owning a car, being in a romantic relationship or traveling. And of course, our society encourages this kind of thinking. What's, what's the great Australian dream? Well, it's to own property, because then we'll have security and freedom, apparently. Now, we've called our series in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Real Life. And here, Jesus warns that chasing wealth, aspiring to be materially wealthy, is not real life. In this section, Jesus outlines four choices. But in each of these choices, there are only two objects or two aspirations to choose from. That's because trying to find a compromise or trying to find a middle ground between these two pairs of choices in each case is absolutely impossible. We simply can't have our cake and eat it because that's not real life. It's like when we used to fly places. Anyone remember going on a plane? You'd be asked if you wanted beef or chicken for your meal. You couldn't say, yes, I'll have the beef, but I'll have the salad and the dessert from the chicken meal, please. Jesus' point is the same. You can only choose 100% of one or 100% of the other. There is no middle ground, and those are the options. 
So I do encourage you to have that outline open in front of you. You can follow along with us. This will be the first point on our outline. The first pair of choices that Jesus presents us with, which is two treasures. And in verse 90 to 21, Jesus states that there is great danger in treasuring earthly wealth. The danger lies, he says, in a particular characteristic of all earthly wealth, the fact that it is perishable. It's perishable. Our clothes perhaps aren't in danger of moths as they once were, but rust is something we're familiar with, especially on the coast. I'm sure we could also add to that list bushfires, floods, tropical cyclones, termites, mold. We're in Queensland after all. Theft also remains a danger to our wealth as much as it was 2,000 years ago. I'm sure all of us have had something of value stolen from us at some point. Even more liquid assets are perishable. Financial crises and stock market crashes and dodgy financiers, the ebb and flow of the world financial system, can mean that our wealth is quite literally here one minute and gone the next. Uh, Back in 2008, I was doing my college placement at a church in the heart of London's financial district. And I remember when the global financial crisis hit, and there was a particular day where one after the other slickly dressed stockbrokers in suits wandered into the church in a sort of daze because they couldn't go home and tell their families that they just lost absolutely everything except the clothes on their backs. Now, it still amazes me that they decided to wander into a thousand-year-old stone church nestled in the, the shadows of the skyscrapers, but, you know, God was at work. And it was an amazing opportunity for a lot of our ministry workers to go and drop what they were doing and go and sit with a, a devastated stockbroker and share with them a, an eternal hope in Christ. The point is that there is no material asset in the world that is completely imperishable and secure. It just isn't. We talk about buying futures and buying securities, and it's a bit of a lie, really. So why peg our hopes on those things? Why make something like that our treasure, the thing we live for, the thing we pour ourselves out to gain? Why aspire to accumulate perishable goods and call it our treasure? You might as well gather a great big pile of mangoes and call it your treasure. It might look good now, maybe for a few days, but in a few days or a few weeks, it'll be a rotting, putrid mess. And even if, we, if what we have now doesn't let us down in this life, what happens to it when we die? We can't take it with us. Now, so many famous archaeological sites are grave sites filled with treasure. Think about the pyramids in Egypt, a dead king surrounded by extravagant wealth. He's meant to carry all that through into the next life, but of course he's gone, and his treasure is still in a hole in the ground 3,000 years later. Or have you ever read the terms and conditions on a so-called lifetime warranty? It certainly doesn't mean the product will actually last a lifetime. Usually it only applies to the initial purchaser of the product, for the lifetime of the product, and as long as the manufacturer is in business or still making replacement parts. Uh, Back in 2017, electronics company Belkin, they offered a lifetime warranty on some of their phone charging cables, but it turned out the warranty was limited to five years because that's how long they expected the cables to last anyway, and they were taken to court over that. Nothing lasts forever. 
By contrast, says Jesus, if we look up and we seek treasure in heaven, we will have treasure that is completely imperishable, completely secure, and it will last forever. Look at verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There might be moths in heaven in the new creation, but they'll be sanctified moths, I believe, that won't eat clothes. But there won't be any rust or thieves or bushfires or floods or tropical cyclones or mold. There won't be financial crises. There won't be stock market crashes. There won't be dodgy brokers. It sounds like the kind of place I'd want to keep my treasure. So says Jesus, set your heart on something that lasts and beware the danger of spending yourself by aspiring to something and treasuring something that will ultimately let you down. What are treasures in heaven? It's a reasonable question. Are they some sort of uh, celestial share portfolio that we just cash in when we die? No, and quite simply, we get this from elsewhere in the Gospels, treasure in heaven is our relationship with the Father and others' relationship with the Father. That's the treasure we ought to set our hearts on. So beware of standing before God at the end of your life with nothing ahead of you and everything that you've worked so hard for left behind. So that's the first choice, between two treasures. The next choice is between two outlooks, verse 22 and 23. And it sounds confusing, but it isn't really. Jesus says that the eye metaphorically lights the body, and there's a choice between a healthy eye and a bad eye. And if we replace the word eye with the word vision or outlook, I think Jesus' point becomes clear. That which we set our eye on will determine our inner character. If we set our eye on the right thing, if we aspire to the right thing, we will be full of light. If we set our eye on the wrong thing, if we aspire to the wrong thing, we'll be full of darkness. The context is treasures and wealth, and so really it's the same idea that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 6. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. You see, setting our eye on earthly treasures rather than heavenly treasures will have moral consequences. There's no use to pretending otherwise. Remember, there are only two choices. Aspiring to earthly treasure will make us greedy, it will make us stingy, we'll find it easy to betray those around us if our only loyalty is to our earthly treasures. The people in our lives will come second to the stuff in our lives, and we will dehumanize ourselves, as we'll see towards the end of the section. One preacher put it like this, again, just as blindness leads to darkness... So an ignoble and selfish ambition, for example, to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth, plunges us into moral darkness. It makes us intolerant, inhuman, ruthless, and deprives life of all ultimate significance. You see, you can't set your eye 
on earthly treasure and hope to live in the light. The choice is one or the other. This brings us to our third choice, the choice between two masters. Verse 24. I wonder if our ambulance has just arrived. Are they there, Tim? Yep. Great. Let me encourage you. Let's just take a pause there for a moment. There's a lot to think on so far. And maybe just spend some time quietly, maybe with the person next to you, just praying for the situation. And that's going to be very distracting just for the moment. So feel free to turn to the person next to you and spend some time praying or discussing maybe what we've uh, had so far. And we will pick up again in a moment. Great. Well, let's, let's pray once more. It's probably appropriate to do that. Father, you do know the end from the beginning. Uh, Lord, you knew exactly what would happen this morning. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that we are indeed in your hands. We just thank you also for the medical care that we have. We pray, Lord, now that you'd be with Jo and give her peace and uh, ensure that she gets the best care she needs. And Lord, we also pray now that we would turn our attention once more towards your word. Uh, keep us from distraction so we may hear what you would say to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thanks everyone for your patience, and thanks also to those who helped. We're at the third point in our outline. We've looked at Jesus' two, uh, presentation of two choices so far. His saying that we have to choose between two treasures and saying that we have to choose between two outlooks. Now we're going to look at the third point, which is the choice between two masters. And Jesus' point is about who or what we serve, that which commands our time and commands our effort and commands our resources. And maybe this does come as a surprise that money can in any sense be a master. I think we prefer to think that we're the master, that money's there to serve me. That's why we want it, after all. The first mistake is thinking that we can be a master in any sense. Jesus doesn't give us that as an option. The only masters are God or money. The second mistake is thinking that money will ever serve us. The only time money is ever a servant is when it is used in God's service, either to feed and clothe the poor and hungry or to resource the spread of the gospel. And as long as we aspire towards earthly treasure, says Jesus, setting our hearts on it, setting our eyes on it, it will be our master. The point here isn't so much about making the wrong choice, though, and that's certainly in view, The point is more about fooling ourselves into believing that we can serve God and serve money equally and equitably, without conflicts. Again, we can only choose 100% one way or 100% the other way. Jesus is categorical in verse 24 when he says, you cannot serve God and money. This is really difficult, I think, for, for us to admit. We all do. We all try to convince ourselves that We can serve God and serve money and be okay, that we can safely compartmentalize our lives into what belongs to us and what belongs to God. The painful reality, says Jesus, is that to not submit entirely to God as our master is to reject him entirely. The one we choose to serve will, by necessity, affect our relationship with the other. So if we choose to make money our master we will resent God's commands to give to those in need, to invest in gospel ministry, to live simply and be content with what he provides. We will think of God as mean and stingy 
and ungracious when he doesn't give us what we think we're entitled to. And we will end up despising God. Of course, that's no way for a member of God's kingdom to live, is it? But if we let God be our master and if we serve him, we will see the wealth he graciously provides us with as a resource to be used in his service to secure a treasure of eternal value. The choice between two masters. And finally, the fourth choice is between two priorities. Heavenly priorities and earthly priorities, starting in verse 25. And here we might say that Jesus gets down to the nuts and bolts. He knows what we're like, how hard it is to tear ourselves away from the, from the allure of material aspiration. And so he says to us in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, who of us can honestly say we've never been anxious about our lives or been anxious about what we're going to eat or, you know, agonized over a choice of what restaurant to go to or worried about what we're going to wear today? Who worried about what they were? Um, I won't ask you to put up hands and share your wardrobe anxieties from this morning. I have. We all do. This is why Jesus gives us two reasons why we should not be anxious about material needs. The first is there in verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What Jesus is saying in a manner of speaking is that you are not a dustbin any more than you're a mannequin. In other words, your worth and value doesn't exist in the food that you put in your mouth any more than the clothes you put in your body. I think this is worth saying, especially in an age where pictures of what people are eating and what people are wearing dominate social media feeds, giving the illusion that, yes, life is food, and yes, the body is clothing. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? It's a rhetorical question to which the answer is obvious. Our worth and our value as human beings created in God's image is in more than what we eat and more than what we wear. So that's the first reason not to be anxious. This, the second reason not to be anxious about material needs is a greater reason. And to see it, Jesus says, you just need to look at the world around you. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the nations, they seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Can you trust God to provide what you need? Of course you can. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, says Jesus. I think it's worth highlighting again that statement of relationship 
which comes up over and over and over in this sermon. So often Jesus reminds his hearers that God is their Father in heaven. That's because, as someone has said, the emphasis of the sermon is constantly moving us away from rules and towards relationship. If your heavenly Father knows you and loves you, will he not be eager to give you everything you need to sustain you until he calls you home and everything you need to serve him in the world in the meantime? We're going to revisit that idea when we get into chapter 7 next week. But the main thrust of this choice between two sets of priorities, it's captured in Jesus' summary statement in verse 33 and 34. Have a look with me there. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that remarkable? If we seek first our material needs, if we prioritize them, Jesus says, we'll be left with perishable goods, an inward darkness, a cruel master, and, uh, and priorities that breed anxiety. But if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, one day at a time, says Jesus, the material things that we need, they'll be added to us. Can that possibly be true? I think we probably too easily dismiss Jesus' words here as a sort of Christian idealism that us mere mortals who are stuck in the daily grind can never hope to achieve. It's an extravagant promise, yes. But how many of us can honestly say we've tried God in this department and found him wanting? What right do we have to be skeptical of God's ability to provide for our needs when we've rarely, if ever honestly and single-mindedly put his kingdom and his righteousness first in our lives. What would this actually look like? Well, remember the emphasis of the sermon, living out a relationship with the Father. And so this is a picture of the one who gets up each day and starts their day praying, as we read last week, my Father in heaven, your kingdom come, give me today my daily bread and then goes off to work and buys their groceries and gives generously and plans for the future in a way which doesn't depend on material wealth, but depends on their Father in heaven. In a way which doesn't aspire to material wealth, but instead aspires to a deeper relationship with your Father in heaven. In a way which doesn't aspire to self-glory, but to our Father in heaven's glory before anything. And so Jesus really is saying, put your relationship with your heavenly Father first. Before anything else, make that the only priority in your life. And everything you need will be added to you by a gracious and generous Father who knows what you need. You don't need to worry about it. Your Father will take care of you. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't mean we shouldn't work or we, should be, we shouldn't be wise with our finances, or we shouldn't plan carefully for the future. The Bible condemns those who are lazy. It condemns those who don't provide for their families. It commends the ant who stores what it needs for the lean months, Proverbs chapter 6. But rather, it's a question of dependency. 
Is our dependency on material wealth or is our dependency on the God who provides everything? Even through our own work. Our priorities must be heavenly ones, not earthly ones. And I think this will, this will free us, actually, from the rat race of trying to keep up with everyone else, judging what we need by what everyone else has, and killing ourselves to have it. And you know what? I think it also liberates us to enjoy the things that God provides, to enjoy good things like food and clothing and creation, and, because we're not depending on those things for our worth and value. We will be grateful for everything we have, recognizing that it's a gift from God. And as such, I think we'll be careful with it and we'll want to use it in a way which brings honor to the giver. Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones famously said, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I try and I can't get no satisfaction. In fact, he's still saying it 60 years later. By contrast, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Earlier this year, uh, there was a story in the news about British IT engineer Jamie Howells, who suddenly realized that he'd made a very, very, very expensive mistake. You might have seen the story. Uh, Back in 2013, he'd accidentally thrown away a computer hard drive containing 7,500 Bitcoin. And let me just say to you, I don't understand cryptocurrency at all. But I'm told that 7,500 Bitcoin, according to this, is worth almost $510 million on a hard drive that he chucked in the bin, which was now at the bottom of a rubbish tip in his town. His local council has continued to refuse his request to search the tip, despite offers to donate millions of pounds upon the hard drive's retrieval. Howells estimated that the hard drive could be anywhere in a 200-square-meter area, up to 15 meters deep and covered by 300,000 tons of garbage. But he's not giving up. He's engaged professional salvage experts to put together a plan to convince the council to let him dig for his treasure using sonar and satellite imagery and all sorts of other things. But as of today, they're not having a bar of it. And so, yes, Jamie Howells, owner of uh, a fortune worth $510 million on a hard drive at the bottom of a rubbish tip that he cannot touch. It's effectively worthless. Friends, this is what it will be like one day to stand before God at the end of our lives where we've set our hearts on earthly treasures, where we've had our eyes darkened by a tunnel vision towards material wealth, where we've made money our master and despised God, and where our priorities have only produced anxiety in us. It'll be like having a fortune, but it being at the bottom of a garbage tip we can't touch. Don't make that mistake, says Jesus. So maybe today is a great day for a heart audit. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trusting that what you need will be added to you? Are you seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness and letting your relationship with the Father shape how you work and how you manage your finances, how you give and how you plan for the future? Maybe you need to do a heart reset. 
Maybe consider what Jesus suggested to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and give away a whole heap of money. It's a good test for all of us. What's our first reaction to that suggestion? The Bible tells us that the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. But what better way to show where our treasure is and who our master is than if we're willing to receive what God gives and give it away willingly? To parents, what example are we setting for our kids? Are we more concerned to provide them with earthly treasures than heavenly ones? To young people deciding what to do with your life, beware the danger of making material wealth the thing that you aspire to. Make your relationship with your heavenly Father your greatest aspiration, and let that shape everything else. The Bible says you will not be disappointed. It's the path to real satisfaction. Now, of course, none of this is about dollars and cents. It's about our hearts. And so rich or poor, the the message is the same. Don't risk living for this life and squandering the next. I'll leave you with a quote uh, from a long time ago, but I think which makes a very penetrating point. A Puritan called Jeremiah Burroughs once uh, wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in it he says, A godly heart enjoys much of God in everything he has and knows how to make up all wants in God himself. The saints in heaven do not have houses and lands and money and meat and drink and clothes. You will say they do not need them. Why not? Well, it's because God is all in all to them immediately. And with that, how about we pray? Our God and our Father, we thank you for these penetrating words, Lord, that you know what is best for us. And Lord, though the world may scream loudly, remind us, please, that we are members of a different kingdom, an eternal kingdom which will endure forever and which will satisfy forever. Father, help us indeed to be poor in spirit, but rich towards you. Help us to recognize what we have in Christ how you have lavishly poured out upon us your wealth. And Father, let money not be our master, but let let you be our master. And let us use the great gifts that you've given us to make heavenly investments, to see great returns when Jesus returns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it's always a good idea to recommend good resources, and if you want to think a bit further on and the slide didn't update, that's okay. I've got a copy of the book over here. It's called Beyond Greed. Highly recommend this book. It was written in 2004. It's an Australian book. Um, we don't have copies in the library, but I'm hoping to rectify that this week. But Beyond Greed by Brian Rosner, uh, highly recommended if you want to think about this whole area of how we honor God and how we live in a world which makes finance and money a God and how we serve God with what he has given us. Beyond Greed by Brian Rosner, highly recommended. For now, though, we're going to stand together and sing in response to God's word. A song called Cornerstone, which is about...